there's great chunks of the things we actually enjoy doing that, that nobody would ever charge for anyway, right? Meeting your friends isn't something you charge for. And you can expand that principle quite easily, even, and in some ways, perhaps especially in a world that's more resource constrained. Like we are going to have to, you know, if it is harder to grow food, we're going to have to find a way to distribute food more fairly. Okay, now that may or may not involve price controls or what you do with the market or God help us if it ever gets to rationing or something like this. But these are ways to make that happen. What you do with the rest of your time and the rest of social life, we should expand the range of free things that people can do. We should make it easier for people to do free stuff. We should have more libraries. We should have more public spaces that are free. We should have more concerts that are free. We should do these things. That seems like an obvious solution to a world in which material stuff is harder to get hold of. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is James Meadway. James is an economist, former Treasury advisor. James is a member of the Progressive Economy Forum Council and the host of the Macrodose podcast. James joined me to chat economics, capitalism's evolution from the industrial boom to the neoliberal failure that we see today as states actually are beginning to take back control from that economic ideology in order to protect against the increasing chaos in the global markets. He talked about the emergency fiscal policies that need to be deployed if we're going to protect people from a worsening economic crisis. And then also that the long-term economic policies that we must implement to protect planet demand evaluating what economies are for and who they serve. We discussed some alternative frameworks that are being researched around the world, including degrowth and modern monetary theory. Whilst James continues to make the case that that which we need to reevaluate is value itself. That which we value, that which we spend time on, that which we spend resources on. Before he ends with an excellent case for making far more services and goods free if we're going to protect people and planet. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. James, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. First question, which I'm trialing now, as I just explained to you. <laughs> Why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? So it's a product of, of two things, I suppose. One is that we're, we're entering a, a period in the, the Earth's history that, that actually just hasn't happened in recorded human history before, of, of deep um, environmental instability, of, of rising temperatures around the world, of what we can see happening already is just a series of dramatic shocks in how people live their lives coming really out of this breakdown in the, the stable environment that we've all grown up in for generations now. So that's one part of it. And, and the causes of that are fairly obviously due to what we've done in the past. The bit that's more immediate is the way that this interacts with our big social structures. So you have this underlying ecological crisis, which then hits the various systems that we've set up to try and manage how the world's resources are, are, are distributed, organized and, and distributed. So what you find on a more sort of day-to-day -day basis is that what we see as the cost of living crisis, as it gets labelled in Britain, that is rising prices of all sorts of essential goods, um, and sometimes actual shortages as well. Uh, so you know, what's the one at the minute? Olive oil. Price of olive oil has gone through the roof. It's at a record high um, because there's massive droughts in Spain across the Iberian Peninsula. It's getting harder and harder to grow olive oil, and that translates into a, a big surge in the price. Which, by the way, turns into, for at least some people somewhere, or some big company somewhere, that's going to turn into very, very large profits. We saw it over the last year from a slightly different source, which is a big surge in the price of energy, um, of natural gas and of oil. 
which turns into huge profits for the fossil fuel companies. So you put these things together, that's the most immediate experience of the crisis, I think. If you're in the developed countries right now, this is kind of how we're seeing it in, in economic terms. Uh, and, and it's very, very destabilising, obviously, that after a very long period of time where inflation didn't really wasn't really a consideration for, for much of the developed world, where we got kind of used to everything being stable in a in a fairly fundamental sense, right? Obviously, the the world wasn't subject to these ecological shocks in this way. But beyond that, the you know the, the world economy, other than the two thousand eight crisis, is kind of ticking along. It wasn't sort of profound dislocation of the kind we're seeing now, and that's what we're we're in the early years of. This is how we experience the environmental breakdown. This is how it turns into what we see and perceive as economic crises is the environmental crisis working its way through those big social structures that we have. So you need to do two things in this. One of them is that uh, you need to, as far as possible, and people get a bit sort of carried away or depressed by this, but as far as possible, limit the amount of damage that we're continuing to inflict on the world. The more greenhouse gases we put out, the worse things are going to become over the rest of this century. I mean, that's just obviously what the the scientific modelling will tell us now. But it's not just greenhouse gases, it's also biodiversity loss. Uh, It's also more generally resource use. So you have to have a a fairly comprehensive view of what we might want to do instead. That's one part of it. The other part of it is directly tied to that. We just have to change some of these social structures. That if we have a world in which a few very large companies can sit at critical parts in the really essential systems that we rely on, so it might be the energy system or it might be the food system, um, the two most obvious ones, where you have in the energy system, you have fossil fuel companies who can exploit the fact that there's really sort of serious dislocation globally in the supply of fossil fuels. They can make huge amounts of money out of this. You can see something similar happening with the, the soaring profits of the world's four largest agribusinesses, um, up 255% in the last few years, on the basis of this disruption. You can see in, in the speculative profits, the speculation that's taking place in, in food prices now that you're going to have to change some of these social structures to get rid of that speculation and profiteering if we're having to deal with a world that's more unstable. So we're going to have to think about not just how are we going to reduce our carbon emissions, how are we going to reduce our resource use, uh, how are we going to reduce biodiversity loss. I mean, one way or another, most of these things are kind of entering into an accepted view of how we're going to manage the world. It's also how are we going to change these big corporate structures so they're not profiteering from the amount of chaos and and crisis that's out there. So this is an economic problem Mm. that is reverberating through our environment and the environment's reaction we are feeling first within our economic systems. Yeah, that's exactly it. So we spent 200 years or thereabouts uh, with industrial capitalism, I mean, critically digging up fossil fuels and burning them to to produce energy, to power. Uh, An an incredible period of of industrialisation and transformation in, in how we live our lives. I mean, it's extraordinary the things that have happened, obviously, in the last 200 years. But it's got this backlash or backwash effect, which is uh, climate change and global warming. That's one part of it. The other bit is is sometimes it gets not quite as much attention as it deserves, which is uh, the combination of resource use, that we are actually intruding quite significantly on the amount of raw materials that are out there for us to consume and turn into other things through these industrial processes, including farming, by the way. I mean, there's increasing pressure on farming, not just from you know, kind of extreme weather events that you touched on, but also the fact that that productivity of farmland is not growing as rapidly as it used to. That it's getting harder to find good farm uh, farmland to grow things on. That there's a real sort of pressure and resources there. And the final bit is biodiversity loss, uh, which which we can see in all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, the, the one that gets raised quite rightly is the loss of pollinating insects and this sort of thing. That these all have impacts that hit us not directly, but through the economic institutions that we have. It would make sense then that a lot of the research that's going into is how can we restructure the economies? Um, and let's we'll go into some of the, the models that are sort of available and being discussed. But I have to say, a question that comes to mind is, how would you define this economic era that we're in? Is it still capitalism? Is it a corporatocracy? What's, what are the words that are flying about? Oh, it's, capital, it's always been capitalism. The, the underlying dynamic here, is capitalism. Why is it that you, you have a system where, even though you, you have basically chaos, but that means that a few, not all companies, but a few companies can make a great deal of money out of this. There's a dynamic that's at work there where it is competition between those companies locks them into having to try and make as much profit as possible out of whatever market they find themselves in. 
And so if you're a fossil fuel company, you exploit as far as possible the fact that uh, there are shortages and disruption in the market for natural gas across Europe. So you make a huge amount of profit out of it. Likewise, uh, oil production. And that applies, by the way, even if you're a state-owned company. I mean, the majority of the world's fossil fuel reserves are in the hands of companies that are owned by their governments, but they behave exactly the same way. It's still a capitalist system that's driving these things onwards. So that's what we're all locked into. And that's why we have this particular experience of basically environmental breakdown is one where it's unpleasant for very, very large numbers of people. And there's a sliding scale of unpleasantness. You know, cost of living crisis in Britain means that the price of eggs or the price of milk or whatever it is goes up a lot. Uh, the other end of that is uh, the world, you know, the, the United Nations World Food Programme saying that there's 345 million people on the verge of starvation. This is a spectrum of experiences. All of it is bad and some of it is extremely bad. What we all end up with is facing the same sets of very, very large, in particular global structures that operate in the same way to make profits out of all of this situation. So it's capitalism. It's always been capitalism. And that's kind of what the problem is here. I suppose... If I were to push back slightly, if I may, mm-hmm. um, the you know free market ideologues sort of say that capitalism yeah. is a fair system um, because it's sort of being networked within a market. And if you can provide for your community, i.e. the economy, then you'll be rewarded and all this kind of thing. But even, first of all, even sort of your original capitalists, mm-hmm. uh, like your Milton Friedmans um, and your Hayek's thought that the, A, the market should be regulated in a way that we're just not seeing today. And B, a lot of these companies that are exploiting uh, people, nations for vast, vast profits are also benefiting hugely from government subsidies. So is it, I mean, is it really capitalism in a world where, according to relationships still, um, that companies get to profit so much from, from a populace? There's two two things to separate here. I think firstly is a sort of ideology of capitalism. That there's, if you like, the excuses really for for why this is there, and and the the core argument about this is a fair exchange between equal people. That if you go to work, um, you get paid by your boss, and that's a fair exchange. You turn up for work, and he or she pays you for the work you do. The, the challenge with that, and this is really getting back to you know good old Marx, I suppose. But the challenge with that is that. Your boss controls the means by which you're going to work and you just have to sell your time to your boss in order to be able to get money to work. I mean, that's the basic unit, the, the basic problem that, that Marx talks about. So it's not really an equal exchange at that point. There's something more exploitative happening. Of course, your boss at the same time, the company that is exploiting you as a worker is also going off and, and digging into this immense free gift, which is the environment in one way or the other. So either it is digging things literally out of the ground and burning them, or it is making use of the fact that you can just dump things into the atmosphere. And for you as a company, there's no real cost straight away. You know, if you're building a mill in 1850s Manchester, the cost of you doing that isn't really there at all, because it appears a very long time later as climate change for a load of you know, generations of people in the future. So you have these, this kind of free gift of the ways you can exploit nature. So it's an exploitative system because of these two two factors. And it's always been like that. And the the ideology of free exchange is, is a sort of covering up for, for, for what's taking place there. So that's the ideology part. The other bit is also, yeah, it's supposed to be a market for everything. It's supposed to be the way everything's organised as free competition and we all get this wonderful spectrum of goods and services available because of the market. But the state has always been there. You know, the state is there right at the start of, uh, of capitalism when you have to you have to discipline people to crudely to stop working in fields and start working in factories. You need to set up things like workhouses. You need to have a state that will enforce uh, restrictions on trade union organisation, for example. And then as capitalism develops, you get a state that does slightly more sophisticated things. You get a state that starts to provide things like education or healthcare or roads or sewage system. That There's things that a private capital and private capitalists find difficult that a state can do. But it's always been there. And what you find by the time you get to today is the state is massively integrated into everything. The supposedly private uh, profit-seeking, well, they are profit-seeking, but market-driven enterprises are doing. And you end up with very cosy relationships between big business, big businesses and their, their local state. Uh, there's relationships of lobbying. There's relationships of personal relationships between people who run big companies and senior civil servants. This is how the thing operates. So the state is always there. It's a kind of ideological claim, particularly on the part of neoliberals, to say that either it shouldn't be there or it's not really there. In fact, it's always kind of there. 
The important bit is how that relationship changes. And I think what we're seeing at the minute is that that relationship is becoming much closer, that you have, I mean, you can see in the US most dramatically where where this the American government, which for decades has proclaimed that it's it's you know well into the free market, this is how the world is supposed to run, never entirely true, because it always had this massive expenditure on defence, this you know state expenditure uh, that was taking place there. But it's now under Joe Biden, there is an immense amount of investment going into green industries, going into semiconductors, a really close relationship that, that's developing there in a really kind of overtly anti-market in some ways, and certainly anti-neoliberal way. So it's a change in how capitalism operates under pressure, I would say, of this crisis in part. But it's a shift in how the thing operates. It's not a change in capitalism as such. It seems that what the United States and what the United Kingdom are doing is very, very different. Um, it was sort of incredible to see Biden, you know, the president of the United yeah. States want to bring industry home. <laughs> sort of saying, back off to the global market and panic in that way. Yeah. Um, and here's hoping some good will, will come out of that. It seems that like the role of the British government right now is to continue driving profits mm. to the corporate elite. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's completely fair. I mean, in fits and starts, the British government is, in fact, having to do the same thing. Like, every government on the planet is subject to similar sets of pressures. Um, one of them one of them is actually the, the environmental crisis, right? which in, in various different ways, the, the series of really big shocks and dramatic things that happened in the last few years. I mean, take the pandemic, have meant that governments have had to intervene. Like whatever they might think they're doing, they've ended up having to do something big. So in Britain, you have a government which is supposed to be, it's the Conservative Party, big believers in the free market and all of this. Uh, suddenly they spend a fortune via furlough and massive interventions in the economy to deal with the pandemic. And they kind of keep doing this. They've had to nationalise another railway company. They don't want to do this, but they are having to do this. They were talking over the weekend. It was leaked to the Daily Telegraph. The government is considering food price controls, right? Because it has to deal with the fact that food prices are, are shooting up astronomically in Britain uh, at the minute. So it's a government's being forced to act like this. In their heads, you know, if you can dig out Rishi Sunak and ask him what does he really think about the world, he will still try and tell you a story about how he's a true believer in the free market. And one day, we're all going to when all of this has calmed down, we're going to get back to the proper free market Thatcher uh, position. Of course, it's never going to calm down. That isn't going to happen anymore. The other one, of course, to, to throw in is is there's a kind of direct competition that's been felt in particular in the US, although you can see it in the, in the EU as well, and in Britain, which is that for most of, most of its existence since the Second World War, the US has barely had a competitor, not economically, not really, maybe militarily with the, the old Soviet Union. But once that was out of the way, it was the, the global superpower and there wasn't another superpower out there. What you're finding now with China and its incredible growth over the last 40 years or so, is that the US is suddenly facing serious economic competition in things that it takes very seriously. US capitalism takes very seriously. You know, so it's high technology uh, equipment. It's things like semiconductors. You can see the, the, the fight emerging around green investment. Uh, and this is why the Biden administration is steering money into those things. Everybody's subject to that kind of pressure as well. So that everybody's having to adapt around not only this sort of ecological crisis, but also this change in the balance of global power. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you saying that there, it suddenly seems that to the states, despite this ideology of kind of being in the background and just being there to yeah. like implement framework that allows yeah. for the market, like the state is the market in a sense. If the state decides that this is what we're, we want to invest in and this is what we want to develop, then the market responds. And as you just said, it's the United States responding to China's government and to their strategy yeah. that is now implementing or creating these whole new market forces within United States yeah, exactly. borders. Exactly. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, which mm. is what all the, the sort of the big, very, very hefty green investment um, the Biden administration is planning is coming through, it, it is exactly like that. And you can see the impact on it, that, that because the government there has gone out and said, we are going to put an absolute fortune, hundreds of billions of dollars into green technologies of various sorts, particularly electric vehicles, which has its own problems, by the way. But suddenly every company on the planet, all the car manufacturers, anybody who wants to make uh, batteries, anybody who's connected to any part of that supply chain is thinking, oh, right, well, I'm going to go to the US and get those subsidies and set up there. And, and there's investment crowding into the US now because of that. That was government action that led the market. So instead of the old neoliberal thing where exactly as you say, the ideology and the practice of governments was to go, we can't do anything. It's a level playing field. Let the market decide. Never entirely true in practice, but that was what they'd say. And they'd sort of try and do that, particularly in Britain. 
that's been turned on its head because now you have governments deliberately creating markets and you can start to see the impact of that in the way that investment is flowing into US uh, green uh, green, green technologies. <laughs> but they're also creating markets to facilitate business as usual under the yeah. guise of addressing climate change. Yeah. So one of the things that the EU has been really, really big on has been the carbon offset market. And they're now trying to create a framework. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not trying to. They are developing frameworks for mm -hmm biodiversity offsetting and water pollution credits and air pollution credits. Can you speak to um, some of these tools that are being deployed and, you know, what's your opinion on them? Well, none of these things work, right? There's a, <laughs> there's a basic, I mean, notoriously so in the case of things like uh, carbon trading, which has just been a complete washout uh, in terms of, of actually doing anything serious or significant about um, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and then the next step for the, for the sort of somewhat neoliberal way of thinking about things is, okay, well, then, then we'll have a carbon price and we'll do carbon taxes. And, and again, it's like it falls short of what is needed because what you actually need to do is change how we produce stuff. Now, what's quite interesting about the Biden administration, to a lesser extent, some of what the EU is now talking about. I mean, for years, this was a decades, this has been a very neoliberal institution. It's now talking about tearing up some of its own rules, own neoliberal rules around state aid, about whether governments are allowed to support their industries, that sort of thing. It, it is talking about how it might start to design and shape some of these new industries. So green technology on one side, semiconductors on the other are really sort of big examples of that. But it's still happening in a bunch of institutions that are really wedded to neoliberalism as a way of what you should really be doing. And it keeps coming back all the time. You can see it very, very much so, like we just talked about in Britain. In the case of the EU, it's always like you look for the neoliberal solution first and then maybe panic and try and find the next thing. It's not a very efficient way of doing anything. It means you're probably going to lose in a whole load of stuff because you go to the wrong solution or the less good solution before you hit on something slightly more practical. But that's where they get to. The other bit to throw in is that look, just because it's not so neoliberal doesn't mean it's particularly good. Um, I mean, Daniela Gabor, who's an economist specialising in sort of financial, uh, in finance economics, really, um, talks about the, the role of the state in de-risking for private capital. In other words, yes, it's a big investment by government, but that investment is there to kind of make, make, the, safe, make the place safe for private capital. Mm. So you know, government turns up and says, we'll take all, all the difficult things that you don't want to do because there's not much profit and it's really risky. We'll make sure we do that. And then you can go and make a, out of the profit out of what is left. Right? And, it's, and, and, and she's kind of onto something when describing some of what's happening with the Biden administration like that. I don't think I don't think she's necessarily completely right because there are some restrictions on if you go and look at what the Biden administration says to companies wanting subsidies, they say if you make excess profits, we will take those excess profits. If you want to build a semiconductor uh, fabrication plant, you have to provide childcare for uh, your workers. There. It is placing some restrictions, so it's not a purely sort of de-risking exercise. But there's a strong element where all of this isn't necessarily about. How do we make a world or an economy work for the people in the first instance? It's about how do we make it work for capital? Uh, and that's the way that, that you can see this playing out. So how do we make an economy work for, for people and planets? Well, this, this is, yeah, that's the really big, uh, <laughs> overwhelming sort of question on this point. Um, th there's, a couple of, there's a couple of things. I think the first one is, is that, look, we, we, need a, we need a sort of emergency response to at least some of this stuff. Um, in other words that when you have a situation in which there are sudden surges in prices of basic goods, like as the most basic sort of starting point, it would be good to have a government that said, we will not allow that surge to happen because we are going to clamp down on the profits that are being made in that surge in prices. And you can see this on, you can see this across you know, food at the minute, where the markup on a pint of milk in Britain, in other words, the amount of profit that companies are making out of that has gone through the roof. What's basically happened is that companies are exploiting uh, the fact there's a degree of sort of chaos and instability to jam up prices. They have some market power there. So what you'd want to do is say, we will restrict that happening. And you need a government that's prepared to say, we will enforce this if we have to. Because what you want is to reduce that profiteering and therefore support people's living standards over here. Now, that's a kind of emergency response. That isn't something that gets you all the way to the point where the world looks better, but it at least stops things getting much worse for people. Because as this plays out, Right now, the cost of living crisis is basically a crisis where most people's real incomes are falling. In other words, prices are rising a great deal, their wages are not keeping up. And then a few companies are making absolutely enormous profits out of that. So you want to do something to change this. The more fundamental bit, I think, gets you into a question of 
how do we restructure how we produce and consume and live our lives? Because actually things are serious and we're going to have to think about these much, much broader issues, which gets you into questions around, for example, if you want to reduce the environmental harm that you're causing on a day-to-day -day basis, a quick way to do that is actually reduce the amount of hours that you work. Right? A four-day week, for instance, not having people commuting so much, of allowing people to spend more time in their homes and around their home within walking distance and this sort of thing, is a relatively quick and easy way to start to reduce the amount of harm that people are causing and can be something quite positive in terms of how people live their lives if you can guarantee that people get the same income out of this. And that to me looks like a building block of what we want to do and how we're going to start to think about what the world will look like. Instead of this sort of peculiar discipline of you go to work to earn money to buy some stuff and that's just what you're going to, that's the, always round and round and round with this. We're actually going to do something to break that and change it, which is that we're going to give you more free time. And in giving you more free time, we're going to create the conditions where we're all collectively going to do less damage to the environment as a result. That's a, a step on the way there. Just thinking more creatively about how and where and when and for what purposes we work. The step beyond that, I think, uh, and this is the point where it gets, you know, bumps right up against the sort of the fundamental bits of capitalism, is that this also becomes a question about ownership and therefore of control. That if you have large chunks of the world's resources, and historically this could well mean things like fossil fuels, but you can see in the future it's going to mean things like access to technology, green technologies, access to artificial intelligence, access to semiconductors. Right? If you have these resources in the hands of actually a very few, very large institutions, that hands a great deal of control over, those, over to those institutions that the rest of us won't have. So what you need is a change in the form of ownership, particularly over those technologies, that you don't want uh, new technologies to simply be patented and taken up by big private companies with their own drives to make profit out of it. You want to see the forms of intellectual property we have, if we think about artificial intelligence cracked open and the technology spread everywhere and a change in the kind of uh, forms of ownership that we're using here. Now, some of that might end up being different kinds of public ownership, familiar kind you know, that we, we're used to, where you have something that the government owns and runs ideally in the public interest. Some of it might also mean forms of community ownership, where you have local electricity generation, you know, a wind farm that's owned on a localised basis, that this is part of a solution here. Some of it might be worker ownership, which we see sometimes. And increase. It's not very big in Britain, but it's, it's starting to gain a little bit of a toehold there. Once you start to open this question, that I think gives you all the building blocks you need for like, what will the world uh, look like in future? So interesting, you know, I asked you that question and you didn't use any of the words that are scattered through our papers and on our news bulletins every day when it comes to economics. Mm. Words like, I'm not going to be able to remember any now off the top of my head. But you know, <laughs> I don't know. I know you already mentioned inflation, but just this kind of thing. Interest rates. Interest rates. Sure. Yeah. There you go. And what else? I don't know. Dividends. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> this language that seems sort of deliberately created to obfuscate um, the fact that none of it makes sense. Um, this is what the people in power and the, econ the economists that get a lot of airtime seem to be repeating over and over and over again, um, despite the fact that things aren't getting better and despite the fact there's sort of a d criminal lack of creativity mm -hmm. there. So if that's what we need to do, if part of economics should also now be talking about ownership and, and sort yeah. of bringing things back into a sense of service for people mm -hmm. uh, rather than people servicing uh, companies, how do we convince the economists? And the people in charge that this uh, my, my, is what needs to happen. Look, I, I don't want to be, I'm not going to be rude about my, my fellow economists and things. It's, <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of not their fault, but like what we're dealing with at the minute is, is, um, it's kind of a, a crisis of the paradigm. Let's call it that. So mm -hmm. it's a crisis of the, the model that people have, not just people, actually institutions kind of have these models as well. Uh, a crisis of the model that people have in their heads where the levers that the model gives you that you're supposed to pull are supposed to be produce these sorts of results, and they're obviously not. And you can see this most obviously with interest rates, right? The, the model that the Bank of England has, that the Treasury has, that, that's just the conventional what you get taught if you go and do economics model, is that if you have high inflation, put up interest rates, that will bring inflation down. And, and the, reason they, the reason there's a belief that this happens, it's quite crude really, but the belief really is that you put up interest rates, it gets harder to borrow money, therefore people spend less. People spend less, companies don't need to employ so many people, unemployment goes up, uh, and therefore um, workers find it harder to ask for higher wages because they're scared of being unemployed, right? That's kind of the steps oh my God. that are supposed to happen there. And that's the conventional model of how you control inflation. 
the problem you've got is that if inflation is arising, maybe just take the last sort of 18 months or so, arising because of the after effects of lockdown, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and then underneath this, and this is the one that isn't going to go away, this kind of ecological breakdown in various different forms, right? It's just getting harder to do stuff. You can fill about interest rates as much as you want. It will make no difference to any of those things. There is no interest rate in London that will magically cause tomatoes, more tomatoes to grow in Spain, right? It's not going to happen. So there's a really deep fundamental breakdown, I think, in, in those economic models that is not really, it's quite hard for people to comprehend, particularly for an economist, because it's just, it's like outside of your frame of reference. There are a set of things that you think about that look like this box and anything outside of that is just something else. But we're into the world of something else now. So there is a need, I think, to kind of overhaul pretty much the entirety of how, how economics is taught, how people think about it, what people think of as economic considerations. I mean, just another example, I suppose, is the way in which the Labour Party in Britain, the Labour leadership have decided if we talk about growth, that's the thing that will solve all these problems. Right? If at some point in the future, we will have growth and all of this will look better. And once upon a time, you could kind of make a case for this. You know, if you go back 30 years or whatever, I mean, they're obviously thinking about the 1990s. So you go back 30 years. OK, fine. We have growth. Everybody's better off. It's all good. Well, the problem you've got now is, is that we're actually up against some like no one can eat GDP, to put it crudely, right? Growth can go up, but if you don't have enough food, that's the problem you need to solve. And we're getting into the you don't have enough food end of the problems rather than the like you don't have enough GDP end of the problems, to put it slightly simplistically. So I think there's a need for everyone to try and get a bit more into thinking more seriously about the systems that we rely on to produce food, to produce energy, how we manage our water supplies, which is becoming you know, can be really quite a serious issue. Uh, even in somewhere historically as damp and as miserable as Britain, it's becoming a serious issue. That you have to think seriously about these questions, and these are often material, engineering, organisational questions, and perhaps less about the traditional concerns of economics, which is, what is your interest rate? What happens to the money supply? These sort of rather abstract things that we, we've used for you know, 70, 80 odd years now. Well, isn't it sort of a logical fallacy in today's day and age when we have a globalised financial system mm -hmm. and national governments running their own economic policy as if they are not buffeted and hit and influenced yeah. by being plugged into a global system that has no international government presiding over it? Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's exactly. I mean, this is one of the, the sort of contradictions that's, that's played out in many different ways. And, and what, what's happened is that as that global financial system developed, right, so it's a the thing sort of really starts to assemble itself from the 70s onwards. And as it becomes more obviously powerful and influential, and, and to a degree this is encouraged, I mean actively encouraged by some governments, Margaret Thatcher's in, in Britain encourages this, uh, for example, you get a response to it which is to sort of say, oh well, we'll just accept that this big global system's there and adapt all of our policies around what the big global system wants. I mean this is, this is kind of Tony Blair's politics or Gerhard Schroeder's politics, for example, or Bill Clinton's politics where you just say, the big global financial system is here. We have to adapt to what that what that is saying to us, and this will kind of work out eventually in some form or another. Now, I mean, the way it worked out eventually was that we created a huge amount of debt because the big global financial system was good at that. It made us feel quite rich for a while, and then the debt bubble burst in two thousand eight, and we've all been quite miserable since for various different reasons. So, so you know, it always had a, a limited shelf life. What's peculiar now, I think, um, is that increasingly that big global financial system of you know, 20 or 30 years ago doesn't quite work in the same way. What you're finding is that there are some government institutions, in particular central banks, that are increasingly important in how the global financial system operates. So that if you take, for instance, the Bank of England and the way it has been pushing up interest rates over the last 18 months or so, at least part of the reason it's having to do that is because the Federal Reserve is putting up interest rates. And at least part of the reason that uh, that both of these institutions are so important is because when you came out of the crisis of 2008, it was the central banks that were able to produce huge amounts of money in the form of quantitative easing, that were able to get through that crisis then, that because they were one of the primary institutions of rescuing the crisis, they are now important uh, from this point onwards. So you have this sudden focus on what central banks do, more so in many ways, and what actually happens in this big global financial system. It's the central banks that start to steer things. So in other words, there's a kind of a reversion almost to, to what at least some of the, the larger economies, nation states are able to do. 
So let's talk about some of the economic policies that are um, being sort of researched um, around the world as alternatives to, you know, mm-hmm. you know sort of uh, neoliberal capitalism or whatever kind of capitalism that we're evolving into now. Yeah. Um, what do you think of degrowth? You mentioned a four-day work week yeah. that is a sort of foundational policy of degrowth. I think it's a it's a terrible name. Um, I, I don't think anybody should. By this point, I just don't think people should say degrowth. It's it's got that slightly. Um, no, I mean I am going to be slightly rude about it because because I respect. I mean, there's all sorts of people actually working in this frame of thinking. Growth is not the answer to all our problems. We need to think much more radically uh, about what it would mean to not continually chase the form of growth uh, uh, that that we've decided is is of utmost importance. And I think what's happening there is very interesting. Trouble is, saying degrowth itself is so antithetical to like what we all think about the world that it just you know, fries people's minds and, and doesn't work as a way to introduce a subject. But the research that's being done is interesting because it goes beyond one of the historic uh, ways of thinking about the world that particularly if you're on the, the more conventional sort of socialist left, you might well think something like, well, why, why would it be good if the government owns lots of stuff? Well, the, it's good if the government owns lots of stuff because then we'll have loads of growth. And if we have loads of growth, um, we'll have this uh, abundance and plenty for everyone, and then we won't all have to fight amongst ourselves for all the distribution of the world's uh, output because there'll just be stuff for everyone, and therefore loads of growth is good. And that's kind of a, quite a fixed way that at least part of the left has of thinking about the world. You know, loads of growth actually good. The degrowth paradigm that these thinkers trying to make this work and working around it, Jason Hickel, for example, or Yogas Carlis, would talk about actually you need a more radical critique from that, that you can't just go let's have more and more stuff forever because of these environmental limits of various different kinds. And therefore, you have to try and think about, in a more fundamental sense, how we organise production and consumption. And that's really interesting. And that's where opening up the issues like, what do we, you know, how do we spend our time? How much of it should we work? How much should we, should we not work? I think is a more productive question, so to speak, than thinking about how do we get more growth? It's better to get to the fundamentals of what it is that we're actually doing, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the natural world, rather than getting a big abstraction like make GDP go up and this will make everything else look better. Out of interest, do you have a different name that you think would be better? I mean, there's there's, there's a bunch of people talking about a growth, right, which is actually they'll define slightly differently as like, oh, we just don't care about it. And that's probably, by the way, that's probably about the right way to think about it. Mm. Like a, a lot of, if you imagine this, government suddenly ends up in Britain tomorrow and is really committed to changing things. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff you would do would probably make growth go up as you'd normally measure it. If you said, let's go and retrofit everybody's um, house, right? let's give them proper insulation so they can save money in their heating and uh, reduce the amount of, of carbon emissions that they produce, um, that would be a huge contribution to growth as you'd normally measure it. I mean, you, But you wouldn't do it because of the huge contribution to growth. You'd do it because it's a good thing to do. So it's just like the idea that just park this slightly daft, increasingly um, useless, actually, measure of, of gross domestic product and, and think about what really needs to happen. Okay, just a quick question that's popped into mind as you were saying that then. Given that measuring growth and increasing growth is just sort of measuring the GDP that is spent, mm-hmm. um, and given the obsession that governments have with with growth and yeah. their economies, why don't they just spend more in order to increase their growth? Why don't they just go and retrofit all the homes immediately? Well, and call it growth. It, it depends on which government you are. There, there is almost certainly more capacity to, to do this for most developed countries than, than we've seen. Uh, you take the last 10 years or so, I mean, where you have a period of, of deliberately, governments deliberately, not just spending less, but actively seeking to cut their existing expenditure. This is austerity. Uh, right the way across Europe, uh, including Britain. Um, and, and this is sort of bizarre because there's actually no real reason why you couldn't go out. And you can run a very conventional economic model to tell you this, that you could just spend more money and create more jobs. And this would give you some win-wins. It would give you more jobs created by government, which would lead to more people spending money, which would lead to more jobs being created elsewhere. And everybody's somewhat better off as a result of this. You know, we were, a bit of research that the Progressive Economy Forum did last year showed the colossal, I mean, catastrophic losses, you know, many hundreds of billions of pounds that we missed out on because we spent 10 years doing austerity rather than just having a government that said, we're going to keep spending as we were spending before. So there's a, there's a degree to which there's, I call it just ideological, I think there's, there's more to it than this, but there's a sort of institutional bias, particularly in Britain, against governments doing this. That The way the Treasury, for example, thinks about the world is like, the books must always balance, 
however we define that. And the book is always going to balance and we are very, very concerned about spending. And we're concerned to the point that this is becoming self-defeating, that we're going to impose austerity, even though it's not going to work. It's not going to actually reduce our, our debt uh, in the way we anticipate. And it's going to make a load of people poorer, but we're still going to commit to this because the books must balance. So there's, there's an sort of institutional problem there. You can see it at the EU as well, with the European Central Bank and the, the EU over the last 10 years, particularly as applied to Southern Europe, where it's the same like, well, you're just going to have to make the books balance. This is what you're going to have to do. So there's more, there's a lot more capacity there to, to do that. The, the harder questions start to be, okay, if you had a government that wanted to spend more and wanted to do more things, the difficulty there, particularly for Britain, is that we don't actually have a lot of capacity to do more things. Like there's a whole lot of things you might want to do. Let, let's build a load of wind farms. Okay, fine. Mm. Um, we don't actually have the factories to build wind farms, so we're just going to have to buy uh, a load of wind turbines. Only eventually one day you can build a factory, but you're going to have to go somewhere else and, and buy the wind turbines from somewhere else if you want to do this on a large, large scale. So that's a bit of a constraint, because then you're going to have to pay somebody else to do this in order that you build the things here. So you run up against some of these peculiar, particularly in Britain, where the economy is just you know, really seriously dysfunctional. You run up quite hard against these problems of how you relate to the rest of the world and do you actually have the resources to do this sort of thing. I think this leads us on quite nicely to MMT, mm -hmm. um, which I would love your professional opinion on. Now, I'm going to butcher it um, because I haven't, I haven't had somebody on yet to fully explain MMT to me, but it's, it's in my Twitter sphere. <laughs> and from what I understand of it, MMT, modern monetary theory, mm -hmm. um, the, the backbone of it, uh, which is what, what makes it so attractive, is that if governments use their own currency they mm -hmm. can just print as much as they want. And this idea of debt, this idea of inflation, all these yeah. things, is just an illusion that we're ascribing to. It's this old economic yes. model. Um, wouldn't, would that solve our problems if we all just implemented MMT? I mean, well, no, I'd say no um, for a couple of reasons. The, the, I'll, I'll try and do the, the most sort of generous, um, you know, the fairest way of talking about MMT uh, that, that I can. Which is that there is there is a large part of it is just simply true. Now I always feel it's true, but it's sort of obvious that the description a lot of MMT people will give you, which is something like um, a government doesn't need to raise taxes to spend money; it can literally just spend the money, and that's sort of true. That is actually what happens when the government spends money. It doesn't have to. It's not some piggy bank somewhere. There's not some vault full of uh, gold coins that the government has to hand out before it can uh, make anything happen. It can just go off and spend money. Um, it does not follow from this that the capacity of government to be able to spend whatever money it wants means that it can make anything it wants happen. Um, so if you take Britain, for instance, and take the example we just had, that, for instance, we have had this miserable problem over last year that natural gas prices across the world have shot up, uh, and that has turned into very, very big increases in people's household energy bills. Uh, and to get around this, under some pressure, the government introduced the energy price guarantee where they, it's not actually very effective, but they kind of cap the household bill at a certain level and basically pay for the rest, right? So they'll pay for the costs on top of that. Now, they have actually been borrowing uh, to do this and you, you can get quite a long way with that. The difficulty you face if you're Britain doing this is that you have to buy about half the natural gas you use from the rest of the world. So you have to take pound coins and go off and swap it for another currency in order to buy the natural gas. If you are just printing loads and loads and loads of pound coins, there is a reasonable chance that the rest of all will say, actually, maybe these pound coins or these electronic pounds are not worth as much as you're claiming, and we'll want more of them in order to buy our natural gas. Same thing goes for food. We import imports just under the half of the food we eat. So, you know, you could go and print loads of money and try and buy food from the rest of the world, but the rest of the world might well say, actually, we don't think your money's worth too much. And your exchange rate falls and you're going to have to hand over many, many more pounds to obtain a little bit of food or a little bit of natural gas. So there's kind of limits here, which is that most economies aren't that big relative to the whole world and do have to try and persuade at least somebody in the rest of the world to buy some of their stuff using money. So the value of that money relative to the rest of the world really matters. And if you have the idea that you're just going to print or borrow without limit, it's likely to change the valuation that the rest of the world has of that money. Now, one country that doesn't apply to is the US, which is why MMT is so popular there. The, the US has the dollar. The dollar is used in what, 80% of transactions, 80% of trade across the world is denominated in dollar. So you buy oil, typically you buy it in dollars. Um, whatever currency you use domestically, you're going to pay in dollars. Whatever currency the oil producing country uh, uses, you pay in dollars. It gets used everywhere. 
And because this is a huge demand for it, US government knows this, they can borrow as much as they want, effectively, and the rest of the world just has to stump up. Like the value of the dollar stays high. So MMT in the US makes a kind of sense. And actually, if you look, since the 80s, various governments, typically Republican governments, have just borrowed like crazy for the things they want to do. Ronald Reagan runs up massive deficits because he wants to fight the Second Cold War. He wants to ramp up military spending, so he did. Uh, George W. Bush does something very similar and cuts taxes for billionaires. Trump does something similar, of course. Um, they have the capacity to do that for now. For as long as the dollar is dominant like this, as long as the US is definitely a top dog, it has that capacity. And an MMT view of the world makes a bit more sense. If you're any other economy, you're kind of, you're not the top dog. You're somewhere down here. And the rest of the world knows that. And you can't, you don't have the same freedom of manoeuvre. Who are they borrowing from? Oh, what? Who? Who? When the US? Just when, no, when, when, when governments borrow, who are they borrowing money from? Well, this, this is what, yeah, this is a really good question because it, it's like, it depends on which government you are and which country you are, right? Because okay. it varies. So, so if you're the Japanese government, you've mostly borrowed this money from your own citizens, for example. So Japan is a huge, Japanese government's got an astronomical debt relative to the size of its, uh, uh, size of its economy, 200% of GDP or whatever it is. And it, it, this is usually considered not to be a problem because the great majority of that is basically borrowed from, from Japanese citizens. Um, if you're in Britain, I mean, historically it was something like that as well, that you would borrow money from institutions in Britain, but a lot of people in the rest of the world would also want to lend you money. Uh, this is when you get this talk about the, the cost of borrowing going up and down, right? Because this is people deciding they want to lend money to the, the British government or not deciding they want to lend money to the British government, and that makes the interest rate it faces go up and down for its own borrowing. Just recently, a lot of people who are into trading government debt and who are potentially wanting to lend money to governments have become more concerned about the state of the British economy and its government. So the price of government borrowing has really gone up for Britain just over the last few weeks or so. And these things move up and down because of that. The peculiarity since 2009 is that Britain, like the US, like a whole bunch of other places, has also been doing quantitative easing. Which and is... the mechanism of quantitative easing is when your central bank issues a load of new electronic money and goes off into the bond market, in other words, the market for government debt, and buys that government debt. Which means that the Bank of England owns, well, I've got a fortune, about 20% of UK government debt is owned by the Bank of England. And it's similar for other countries that have done quantitative easing. And then that's kind of weird because the Bank of England's owned by the government, right? So there's an argument that all you've done is kind of printed money and you've not really done any borrowing at all, right? That's, that's a, what some people will claim about quantitative easing and they, they have a point. So it's a bit peculiar. Like government borrowing is very peculiar about how it operates and, and what governments will do to raise this sort of funding. It's, it's usually not, depending on the interest rate you're facing, it's usually not such a bad idea to do it, simply because it, it's generally speaking, particularly for the British government, it's quite a quick way to get funding in very, very rapidly. If you want money rapidly, going off and saying we want to borrow this money is actually a pretty rapid way to get the, the money in to balance your accounts and do all the other things you're supposed to do as government. You could see this in coronavirus. You know, there was an astronomical amount of borrowing that the government suddenly did. They went off and said, we need to borrow this cash. Now, what happened then was the Bank of England stepped up and said, we will massively increase quantitative easing. So we will, in effect, just buy this, uh, these bonds off you and lend you the money that we're busy printing. So it's, 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 it, it gets tangled quite rapidly, quite rapidly. But the issue I think that we need to think about, if you're thinking about how you might get out of this and get to something better, is... What really matters is the distribution of resources. Who has what? Who holds the wealth? And what they're doing with it? And government borrowing and you know quantitative easing, this sort of thing, can change some of that. But really, when you get down to it, you're going to have to think about how you're going to tax some of that wealth because you need to shift actual resources around. You need some people, some very, very wealthy people, need to be less wealthy than they are, and other people need to be better off than they are. The, effective, the most effective mechanism we have for doing that is taxation. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, it seems it seems evident, but it's not a part often part of the the conversation. Quite frankly, perhaps because it's been shut down, sort of, in so mm -hmm. many developed uh, developed nations, quote unquote. Um, but the difference in tax rate tax rates even in the last yeah. fifty odd years is astonishing. I mean, I think it was um, pre Reagan, where the highest tax rate in the United States was still about ninety percent. Yeah. For the wealthiest. Yeah. And now if you were to push anything close to like 35, people on both sides of the aisle freak out. Um, it, it's, you're absolutely it's, right. It's, uh, 
it's one of the, the the major sort of victories for, for neoliberalism was this assault on, on taxation. And you can see the effects incredibly dramatically. I mean, uh, Tamar Piketty's huge book from 2014, um, Capital in the 21st Century, makes the case very, very clear. If you take the, the set of the, the larger economies, they and you take the last 200 or so years, I mean, capitalism produces a great deal of inequality for a long period of time. Right, entering the 20th century, these are very, very unequal societies in US, in France, in in Britain, and then it's it's the sort of crisis of the, well, the First World War through to the Second World War, and then the period after the Second World War, critically, where you have high rates of taxation and suppression of wealth in Britain and the US and France and Germany and these other places, that you have much more equality, massive reduction in equality, that once you hit the 1970s. And governments deliberately, under the in the belief that this will make everything better for everyone, this is trickle down economics that you remove these restrictions on wealth, so you get rid of the taxes. You say everybody with money can take their money wherever they want in the world, um, and you do this because you think it's going to make life better for everyone. At least this is your excuse. And suddenly inequality skyrockets right the way across the Western world, in particular, and then even more dramatically actually after the, you know, in Eastern Europe after the the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then of course really really dramatically in China uh, from its own period of sort of shift towards a neoliberal model. I actually don't know much about that period in history in terms of why the why changed. So if things were going pretty well, you have this economic boom, boom in productivity, boom in industry after mm-hmm. the World War II, boom in population. And if standards of living are increasing and inequality uh, is decreasing, the economy seemed to be working. Why mm. did Thatcher and Reagan so desperately want to change it? It's always a question of working for whom. Mm. Uh, and the challenge you hit by the 1970s, there's, there's lots of different bits into play. And there's, there's a huge sort of argument about why precisely this starts to break down. But the short version of it looks something like, look, by the time you get to the 70s, you have, you have real wages rising very rapidly in places like Britain and France and West Germany and the US, rising faster than ever before. Uh, uh, you know, incredible when you had conservative prime ministers that could fight elections with a slogan, you've never had it so good. They were kind of right, right? This is an extraordinary period of boom for most people, not just like a few people at the top and maybe everybody else gets a bit. This is like quite widespread prosperity. Much of what we take for granted in the sort of developed world that we live in today, the fact that everybody has a television set or a fridge or even a, you know, an indoor toilet, that this is all put in place in those years after the Second World War. The challenge by the time you get to the 1970s is that this is putting pressure on profits. That the reason, really, we still tend to think of the 1970s as the worst crisis that ever existed, and oh, there was inflation and strikes and blah, blah, blah. The underlying reason that this is a sort of mythology of it is that profit rates had collapsed, that wages were going up and up and up, and profits rates were falling, even with inflation. Inflation in the 1970s is prices go up, but wages go up even more. So people in Britain, on average, were richer in 1979 than they were in 1970, despite the fact that you had, for some periods of time, you know, 25% inflation. Profits, on the other hand, had collapsed. And if you're concerned about running a system that's there to get profits, profits falling and falling is a crisis, a really big crisis. It's why the crisis this time looks different. Because instead of you know, wages going up, inflation's gone up and wages have gone up even more and profits have fallen. That's the 1970s. What you're seeing now is that inflation's gone up but wages in real terms are falling and profits, at least for some companies, have gone through the roof. So it's a very different kind of crisis. And that's because this time they are deliberately protecting these profits yeah. from experiencing, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and, we, and we, don't have, we don't have things we had in the 70s. Most obviously a, a very large and powerful trade union movement. It's not there in the same way. The restrictions on, on what capital can do do not apply after 40 years of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I hope this isn't a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) We started, I mean, it's the kind of question that I think, um, you know, freshers sort of sit around and get stoned and ask themselves, but I'm interested nonetheless. Um, We started this conversation as well, talking about the ecological Mm. crisis and the the resources and taking too much from the planet and a finite planet in order to feed infinite growth, feed our resource use and feed our consumption. And we have then spoken a lot about economic models. Um, the fallacies of some of those models, ones that can be implemented, currency trade, all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I suppose my question is, is there a system or should we attempt to be moving towards a system as well that kind of 
erodes the power of, of money because it seems to stand in the way between understanding that that which I have paid to buy actually is a resource, is a finite thing um, that has come from the earth or has come from the exploitation of people. It just, it removes the, the physical impact of our actions. And so should we be talking about economic systems that try to, and not marry that relationship mm -hmm. necessarily, because I don't know about you, but I'm very nervous about natural capital yeah, yeah. Um, and putting a price on nature because that completely erodes the value yes. of that which cannot be bought. Um, yes, is there an economic system that we could try to sort of envision that moves away from money as the denominator of, of value? Oh, for sure. I mean, if that's a stone question, that's a, that's a really good stone question. It's like, but no, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is critical um, that, that if we think about how we might manage what's kind of bearing down us quite rapidly, the way we're going to have to deal with a fair distribution of resources and how we use our time and how we use what's available, a great chunk of that is going to have to be taken out of uh, the operation of markets, which means the operation of money. So, and that could be a range of different things that we find valuable that we are going to have to find a better way to distribute from this. We, we do this already. I mean, we're kind of making a cack-handed job of it, or at least the government is, uh, with the NHS. Like we've just said, we're not going to distribute healthcare through a, a sort of market system. And everyone accepts that because they know it's kind of fairer to do this. You just have to try and make it work. You do something similar with education, mm -hmm. and you should certainly make education free. I think there's a very good case for things like broadband, frankly. I mean, this is the 2019 Labour Manifesto. That could be taken out of the money system. Um, that if you, there's one reason I like universal basic income, even though ironically you're giving everyone a bit of money, is that it potentially it starts to give people the chance to not have to spend their time in order to get money. That you can say, okay, I'm not going to work for this day uh, because I don't need to. I'm going to do something else instead. I'm removing myself from the market system. And the reason you, reason you start to do all this is because it's that, you, you're touching it, the, the sort of pressure cooker environment that the market system and the money system and the way it's organized starts to introduce into how we live our lives and what we end up spending our time doing. If you want to break that, you're going to have to pull a great chunk of what we're doing out of that money system and make more things essentially free and find better ways to distribute what we have amongst people. That's actually so lovely, just making things free. That's exactly how you do it. Oh, cool. I mean, what else are you going to do? Well, I know. I know. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I suppose I was just there thinking like, I want, I want, how, what can we have as a currency that doesn't actually donate money? You no, could, but you're right, you just make it free. There, there, are proposals, there are proposals out there to say, oh, currency should all be related to energy use or consumption use. And, it's, mm. and you can get quiet. I mean, I'm going to be a bit mean, but you can get a bit sort of cranky about how to make those things match up. But there's, there's great chunks of the things we actually enjoy doing that, that nobody would ever charge for anyway, right? Meeting your friends isn't something you charge for. And you can expand that principle quite easily, even, and in some ways, perhaps especially in a world that's more resource constrained. Like we are going to have to, you know, if it is harder to grow food, we're going to have to find a way to distribute food more fairly. Okay, now that may or may not involve price controls or what you do with the market or God help us if it ever gets to rationing or something like this. But these are ways to make that happen. What you do with the rest of your time and the rest of social life, we should expand the range of free things that people can do. We should make it easier for people to do free stuff. We should have more libraries. We should have more public spaces that are free. We should have more concerts that are free. We should do these things. That seems like an obvious solution to a world in which material stuff is harder to get hold of. So therefore, we go and make all the nice, you know, fluffy social stuff free and easier. I mean, that just sounds like a world that everyone would want to live in, quite frankly. Well, you'd hope so. You'd hope yeah. so. But, you know, people, <laughs> people tend to get a bit, uh, they, they raise many questions about all of this, of course. What's the number one? Well, the number one question is, is that it's just not possible to do these things. There's a real sort of, you can see it all the time, it's like, you know, uh, broadband was a classic one. Broadband, essentially, like for each extra little bit or byte you get to your computer, the actual cost of getting that is basically zero, right? So the, the efficient price, in a really strict economic sense, is basically zero. So why not just make it free for everyone? You know, government puts some money in to make the infrastructure work possible, your broadband's now free. Now, bear in mind, Britain's a country where a million people in the last year have dropped their broadband subscription, basically because they can't afford it. Now, you think the damage that does to someone's sort of existence, their social life, huge, great chunk of stuff cut off. So make it free and then everyone can participate and then you make that work. Now, raise that as Labour tried to raise it in 2019. It's just screaming, you know, broadband communism. How can this possibly be? You know, it's like absolute nonsense, complete nonsense. Why shouldn't you do this? 
what is the actual barrier to doing this? It's very, very limited. Mm. But it's it's quite uh, there's something in people's heads where it's like, no, 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 it's absolutely cannot. We cannot live in a world where you know, of abundance of this kind. It has to be a world where you're going to be, you know, you have to work and feel miserable about it in order to squeeze out some trinket from somewhere. And that's that's the world we have to live in. And that's quite a deeply embedded feeling I think a lot of people have. I don't know what it is. Is it a hangover from, you know, the Protestant faith? Oh, it's bloody everything, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like there's, you, the entire structure of how we relate to each other uh, under capitalism is organised around principles of markets and trade and you will pay money for this in order to get that and you grow up thinking with this as, as your basic mindset, even if in reality you spend most of your time doing a load of stuff just for free because it's like what you want to do and you're, you're not paying for it. Like a whole load of things you just don't charge for because it would be daft to charge for. We accept that. So it's just a question of expanding what you might accept. Wonderful. James, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? I The person I think is, um, yeah, because we've been mulling over this question, the person I think is really, really uh, important at the minute and is doing like really exceptionally good work on these questions of how do you organise distribution more fairly and that sort of thing is uh, an economist called Isabella Weber who caused a huge sting uh, in a good way uh, at the end of last year when she dared to write in The Guardian that perhaps all these crises mean that we're going to have to think about price controls and, and various big cheese economists went crazy about it and now by this year 18 months later I think people are sort of increasingly accepting this so she'd be a good person to talk to. Wonderful. James, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.